views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall. If the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Barthes, with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed, and commentary by guests and callers. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the October 25th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. On this day in 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. was sentenced to four months in jail for a sit-in. It was not the last time he was incarcerated. Later, he would write, the letter from a Birmingham jail, also known as The Negro is Your Brother, an open letter written on April 16, 1963, where he said, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set a timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Tonight, we'll listen to Mark Lamont Hill, and attorney Akisha Al-Shabazz Whitaker break down the facts of the 13th Amendment. Then we'll discuss the ramifications of Governor Jerry Brown's agreement to restore the voting rights of convicted felons serving time in county jails. Also, the Atlanta City Council voted unanimously 15-0 to pass Ordinance 170 
this legislation makes the possession of marijuana marijuana under one ounce a non-arrestable offense and lowers the fine to a maximum ticket of $75. We'll try and explain why this matters. We'll review a suit against DA who used fake subpoenas to put victims in jail and kick off, kicks off a civil rights battle. Then, if time allows, we'll cover two stories we missed going over last week. First, CNN does an expose called Kids for Sale about European-American couples who are purchasing kidnapped African children in collusion with international adoption agencies. And second, in Beaufort and Bluffton, South Carolina, thousands of poor people are cycled through their municipal courts every year. Some are condemned to jail or prison. None are given a lawyer. All of this information is provided with the hopes of tying it all together in a nice, neat bow so you can understand the reality of our situation. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Maria Miller, born in 1803 in Connecticut. In this segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember the German Coast Uprising of 1811. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Lamont McIntyre who was wrongfully convicted in 1994 for a double murder he never com- committed. Have a question or a comment? You can call toll-free USA at 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How are you doing this week? Hey, I'm doing, I'm feeling kind of um, refreshed this week um, as I sent out an announcement in the uh, weekly newsletter, the uh, Black Talk Radio weekly newsletter uh, was sent out Monday. Uh, If y'all did not, if you all did not get it, please check your email. But I announced in there that I was no longer doing BTR News Live. Um, I was doing it like five days a week and I just keep finding myself falling behind and not available to some of my uh, clients to help them, you know, learn. And so, you know, I can continue BTR News through pre-recorded podcasts. And, of course, I'm never going to stop new uh, doing the live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio with you until slavery has been abolished. So uh, I, I, I'm just really feeling like I have more energy now. So I'm um, I'm just excited to do this program with you. Yeah, brother, I, I know how that feels. I, I learned a long time ago not to bite off more than I could chew because I had done it too many times. Like I was always, I just always had too much to do and I seemed to just not be able to say no. I would take on more and more things until it got to the point where it almost put me in a hospital. So uh, I had to start slowing down and being very uh considerate about when I say, yes, I'm going to do something and put my full commitment behind it. You know, like we did with the millions for prisoners March on Washington. I mean, you and I, we were so deep into that. People thought we were the organizers, but they don't, they don't seem to understand that's what commitment is. You know, when it's, you're doing something for someone else and for something else as if it were for yourself. I think that's the Christian way of doing things. As a matter of fact, isn't it Scotty? Uh, I'm not sure uh, about that, um, but uh, in terms of, I mean, of course, we're going to show up. <laughs> Anything that's dealing with slavery and human trafficking and especially that 13th Amendment, we're going to show up and, you know, uh, grateful to the organizers for inviting us to be a part of that. 
Exactly, man. I, I was so happy to have seen that come into fruition. But I can't say we didn't predict it. <laughs> you know, we knew this was coming. And, and even more, uh, we could hear on this program pretty much tell you what's going to happen within the next five to 10 years. We have looked that far ahead. I mean, there's some things that are just a natural progression. It's just one thing after the other. You can expect it to occur. Like the bottom line is freedom comes no matter what you might think. Slavery is only going to last so long. The people will rise up. It's why we have the Declaration of Independence and what it begins with by stating that very clearly. You know, um, I saw another article and a video uh, was part of the article from this white guy who's a journalist. Uh, uh, the website that he published it on is not well known to me. It's not like CNN or MSNBC or anything like that. Um, but uh, I'm not I'm not trying to say that to minimize the impact of that possible site or, or what have you. But when he pointed out uh, the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery and he started citing how how uh, prison slavery was a two billion dollar a year uh, industry. Uh, he talked about how the U.S. government of uh, the federal government made 500 million off of prisoners, just the Federal Bureau of Prisons made $500 million in profit. In profit. For one year. In one year. 2016. Five, a half a uh, what's that? A half a billion dollars. Yes. And so, I'm like, i never seen this guy before. First time I come across that. But that just told me, though, is that we're in a period of mass awakening on this issue. We've been plugging away at it for the past five years and, and just being consistent, have our ups and downs, getting frustrated, thinking that, hey, we're not getting through to people. But in those five years, we have seen that 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 message is resonating. So when I saw that video today, um, I was like, man, I got I got to I got to, you know, share this. And, you know, it's just so wonderful uh, when you see other people acknowledging that truth and, and brave enough to put their name to it and put it out there because many people might look at you like you some kind of tin hat full wearing, you know, conspiracy theorist. No, this isn't a conspiracy theory. It's fact. The people who would say something like that simply have not studied neither history nor contemporary circumstances uh and very likely they haven't even read the 47 words in the 13th amendment that's all it is just 47 words and they haven't gotten that far so yeah, you yeah. have no right, right to judge me or scotty or anybody else because you are operating on an empty deck you got like two cards in your entire deck and that's it and so compare and contrast that video which i did share on our social media and in btr community now, compare and contrast that with what we heard last week from so-called professors, you know? So, yeah. Well, last week, Scotty, uh, I, I just want to keep it in mind that we had two people on there who really stood out on a positive level in contrast to all these so-called uh, intellectuals who didn't know they're behind from a hole in the ground. And really, as at one point, we're almost advocating slavery. And one woman... I forget her name. She completely went into not denial mode. Remember, she was saying, um, I have not, I can't, I can't agree with 
the idea that convict leasing was developed in order for the South to continue slavery. Like, how can you be in a historian she, she, she and, said, not, and she, not see that? She said it's disrespectful to the memory of those that were enslaved in 1865. It's to, it's to, are you trying to say that the abuses that those people faced back then prior to the Civil War is still going on today? And if I'd have been in the crowd, I'd have said yes. We read the stories every week and share them every day of the beatings, of the rapes, of, you know, just the inhumanity of it all. So, yes, the solitary confinement, all of it. Yes. So Yeah, just about everything. The only thing that may be a little different, and remember, this is 1860 versus 2017. So you got to think of everything in a modern version. But, you know, during those periods of time, people could walk down the street with their slaves in tow and their heads down, and they would say hi to their neighbors, and the neighbors would say hi back, and nobody would act like anything was wrong. And that was how it would go. But you can see very much the same thing today if you go out and look at some of uh, these people on these chain gangs where they're out doing work on the streets and cleaning up after hurricanes or cleaning up after oil spills and the policemen are in tow. You can see that very same thing right there. Or changing the oil of that Louisiana sheriff's, uh, their cars and stuff, or washing the cars. Yeah, washing the cars, cleaning up the White House, cleaning up the state capitals and cooking for the governors and all these different things. You can see all of that in place today. And as far as the horrors are concerned, I I would have to admit there may be some circumstances prior to the emancipation where it was very much worse. Like we don't particularly have breeding houses here where people are custom designed by birth. But we do have some of an equivalent in the way of genetic engineering but I wouldn't associate that with directly with slavery. But in the eight, prior to 1860, particularly here in South Carolina, after the transatlantic slave trade had been abolished, the Southerners started breeding people in order to populate their slave plantations. And sometimes they bred them with their own family members, you know? Yeah, but I don't just, know if bread would be the proper terminology. I would say rape. Those were products of rape. You know. Yes, products of rape, uh, custom design rape. Now I oh, do. Rem- to- yeah, never mind. I don't want to get too far off track. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there is one thing that I've been doing this past week. I've been reading a lot of Frederick Douglass's speeches, man. Like I, I consider him a mentor, uh, of course, postpartum. But um, hmm. I've been reading a, a lot of his speeches and they're just mind blowing. He, I mean, he knew so clearly what was going on around him, how he came to be where he was and how things were going to end up. Uh, such a powerful uh, literary and oratory uh, expert. And if you have the chance, go through some of his speeches. One of the things you shared about his take on the Fugitive Slave Act I was like, man, if he was around today, he would be called a black identity extremist. Yes, he would. He he was that exactly. I I think you're referring to the part where he said the only way to make the fugitive slave law a dead letter is to make a half a dozen or more dead kidnappers. The man who takes the office of a bloodhound 
ought to be treated like a bloodhound. And I believe that the lines of eternal justice are sometimes so obliterated by a course of long-continued oppression that it is necessary to revive them by deepening their traces with the blood of a tyrant. And uh, that was the Fugitive Slave Law speech to the National Free Soil Convention at Pittsburgh, August 1st, 1852. Yeah, that's powerful, man, because that's that's policing for profit and mass incarceration. That's what he's talking about. Because, you know, during the 1850s, when that law came into play, that was their version of what we now know as mass incarceration. That's where the police were born, literally. At least here in the South. Well, we got a, a big roster of stories today and a couple that I'm going to try to get in from last week. But as usual, you know, I'd like to keep track of the positive aspects, too. You know what I mean? Like, not just always the bad stories, but to see the victories, because we need those victories. Yes, that's like Scotty said, we get depressed sometimes, man. Yeah. Once you've seen five, six, seven, eight murders in a week, and you can actually see video more, more often than not of the people being murdered, that weighs heavily on your soul. I have seen more people get killed, particularly by police, in my lifetime than all of my ancestors combined. And I say that because of video. You know, we're able to physically see these things. Yes, yes. And and morale is very important. It is. It is very important. So uh, for this, not only for the sake of morale, but also, as I said, to showcase some of the people who are out here talking about what's going on. I wouldn't mind playing a couple of videos today, Scotty. They're both short videos. Okay. Um, the one is the uh, they're both on the page there. And the one is by Mark Lamont Hill. And the other one is by uh, Akia, Akia El-Shabazz. And uh, they both talk about the 13th Amendment. But I got some questions about Mark Lamont Hill's thing though. Uh, Akia, she's consistent. Mark isn't. And I would like to question that. Akisha Al-Shabazz. Yeah, I was trying to remember her name um, on a different uh, topic of of Moors and how Moors get treated when they come in court. She did a a very insightful video on that. And um, I couldn't remember her name until I saw that you had had posted that video. So um, all right, I'm, I'm going to the thread in BTR community. I didn't see it on the Facebook page, so I'm going to the thread in BTR community. Uh, let me see. Um, I, give me just a moment as it loads up, Max. So what's the first one that, that we want to play for the audience tonight? We want to play the first one by um, the 13th Amendment is the reason for profit of mass incarceration. That's the first one we want to play. Is that attorney Akisha Al-Shabazz? Yes, sir. That is her. And I also am sharing it on our Facebook page for New Abolitionist Radio. Albeit, we are not sure how much longer we'll be participating in Mark Zuckerberg's uh, exploitative practices. (laughs) That's for sure. We're trying to build an institution. And uh, you should join us there on the community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. Set up an account. It's only $24 a year. And help us build something here and be able to uh, help fund this movement to uh, create 
freedom where there was none. What's up, fam? It's your girl, Ike here. Uh, just wanted to talk to y'all a couple about a couple things. You know, I've been racking my brain for solutions because, you know, we all can identify a myriad of problems um, that have led us to this place, um, whether they be historically or, or present-day problems. We can identify all the problems, but we don't have solutions. And I was thinking, I was in court today. I, I didn't have this on. Uh, I changed clothes. <laughs> after court but when I was in court today I had a client and she pled guilty and uh, they assessed a a, uh, a fee for plea, a, a mandatory surcharge and I started thinking now I've always been opposed to these mandatory surcharges because I really didn't understand where the fuck this money was going and so every time somebody pleads guilty there is a surcharge, a fee that they have to pay now even if you are sentenced to state prison, you're still required to pay the mandatory fee. Right. And so you should be thinking, like, how the fuck are you going to pay a fee if you're in jail? Oh, you could work in jail for like 15 cents an hour, 25 cents an hour or whatever it is. And then you can't accumulate any commissary because whatever you owe on those fees is going to be taken from any money that your family deposits in the commissary or that you might make in the jail, right? And you might be thinking, how is this legal, right? Um, that's like, that's, that should violate some type of labor law, but it doesn't. And you know why? Because of the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, which was like, you know, the biggest hoodwink um, of them all. I mean, you all sitting around thinking you're free because of the 13th Amendment, right? Because it said it abolished slavery. I need you all to do your work, do your homework, Google the 13th Amendment and read the language in it and pay particular attention to the exceptions. And some of y'all don't even know that there's an exception. There's an exception in the 13th Amendment. It says that slavery and indentured servitude will be abolished in the state of New York unless, unless, there's the exception, unless, unless you're convicted of a crime. And you know what's crazy about the 13th Amendment? It doesn't say what kind of crime. It just says a crime. It could be any crime. And if you are convicted of any crime, a crime, then you are then subject to slavery and indentured servitude. And that's exactly what's happening in our jail. So when you ask the question about mass incarceration, right, and we want to think about how we can reduce the prison population, you have to really think, like, who is going to, you know, spike themselves, because it's a billion dollar industry, right? They are getting free labor for profit because they're not making not-for-profit shit, right? These are companies that are selling goods and services both nationally and internationally from prison labor, right? So you've got that problem. You also have the problem with the surcharges for people who can't pay. Right? So say you don't have family members who are going to put money in your commissary or you don't have, uh, you can't get a job at the jail. They will then enter a judgment against you for that fee. Yeah, that's right. So you're going to come out of prison with a civil judgment on your credit report. <laughs> right? So now you can't get a job because you're a convicted felon and you can't get a job because you got fucked up credit. And so there's the vicious cycle, right? Because now that you can't get a, 
a job in the primary labor market, you are going to start looking in the secondary labor market, right? And when we talk about secondary labor market, you know, traditionally we're speaking of those markets that people engage in boosting, selling drugs, running numbers, or any 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 credit card scamming, anything like that, right? That will bring you income. That's that's the secondary labor market. And so we've got that problem. So I'm calling for an amendment to the 13th Amendment because we need to remove the exception. There should never be an exception where slavery or indentured servitude is allowed or permitted or encouraged. It's just ridiculous, right? So we need to start there. That's one of the things we have to do because once we do that, then we can say that these wages that you're paying these individuals in prison is against the law. It violates the, the, the labor, the Fair Labor Standards Act or something like that, right? We can go somewhere else with that. And then mass incarceration does, is no longer a billion dollar industry, right? Because it's all about money. This is not about punishing anyone. It's not about retribution. It, it, none of that shit. All of that is, is pretense. All of it is pretense. It's pretextual, right? Because nobody is going to prison, which is the fucking zoo, to be re rehabilitated. Everybody I know who's ever going to prison came out a better criminal, right? Right? Because in prison, it's, a, it's, it's just a, it's just a microcosm of the world. It's the same shit going on in prison. There's drugs, there's gangs, there's weapons, all of that. So you're not getting rehabilitated, not in that environment. All right, so we've got to we've got to move on this on, on multiple levels, right? We've got to move on multiple levels, not just economic resistance, but we've got to bring change legislatively, um, and we've got to push for the change um, from the back end, right? Because we need to make make us not the commodity anymore. Our black bodies can't be the commodity anymore, and mass incarceration is the same as slavery in that we are the commodity. So we need that change. We need that change right away, okay? I don't care who the president is going to be, right? We, we, we're either going to get a crook or we're going to get a possible rapist, one or the other. I don't care which one of them is in there, but somebody needs to address the 13th Amendment, all right? If you're not familiar with it, look it up, read it for yourself, appreciate the exceptions. And then ask yourself, why would anybody ever carve out an exception for slavery? What kind of madness is that? Ike Speaks. I love you. I really do. What's up, fam? There you have it. We uh, love you, too, sister. We said, wish you to be uh, on that panel instead of some of them people that was on that panel that the National Bar Association put up. And see, even like I said last week after we listened to that clip, the National Bar Association makes money off of slavery because lawyers have to pay dues, okay? You end slavery, then you don't have all these court cases, and then the attorneys aren't making as much money uh, to, you know, pay their dues and what have you. So, I mean, it's on so many levels. But earlier today, Max and listeners, um, I hope she's listening to the program uh, she does follow Black Talk Radio. I think she does. At least she does follow me on social media. And I had made a comment about a conversation I had with a brother from North Carolina um, yesterday. 
and I, me and him was just saying we got all these different factions in the black community with different ideologies, and you know they all claim to have the magic bullet or the secret to end in our oppression. But some of them are coming around now. Um, but initially, I never heard these people talk about addressing modern day slavery and human trafficking. They they talk about other things except for that very thing. And, and so she said, well, what would you tell people? And what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for uh, freedom, liberty, and justice for all, for everybody, for in to slavery. And so she just laid out some solutions, some things that we can do, okay? And just to throw out a couple, boycott the banks that are underwriting the private prison industry and investing in it. That would be your your um, uh, Chase Manhattan. That would be your Wells Fargo. That would be your Bank of America. Find some credit union, but make sure you ask them that they're not investing in these sort of things, okay? Uh, what What's some of the other solutions? She mentioned legislatively. This is why, you know, I just kind of hold my head down whenever I tell, whenever I hear people saying that we shouldn't be engaged in politics or whatnot. Well, how else do you think that we are going to bring about the change that we need through laws? Okay, because this is all legal. This op- this operation has always been based on laws, going back to the Virginia colony, one of the first colonies set up. In, on this landmass called North America, okay? So so we have to attack it in many different ways. And and like, you know, uh, Maxis, the person who got Max into being a, a new abolitionist and looking at it as slavery, Angela Davis, I shared that book that where, of Angela Davis that said, freedom is a constant struggle. And so, you know, we are engaged in this, Four five hundred years struggle against slavery. Max, you're right. And uh, once again, I want to give a shout out to uh, Akisha, Akisha Al Shabazz. Uh, she's an attorney at law, practicing attorney, uh, and she was doing her vlog there, uh, where she was driving in a car and talking candidly about what she thought. And she said some things, but also I, I want to start out by re- uh, pointing out that this was recorded in 2016. So uh, I'm pretty sure she wasn't aware of us, New Abolitionist Radio, maybe indirectly. A lot of some of the information was coming to her. But if she knew directly about what we were about, what we were doing in the Millions for Prisoners March on Washington, the uh, voters' uh, initiatives to take the exception clause out and things like that, she would probably be uh, extremely happy. Because on more than one occasion, I have heard her say that nobody are, is doing these things. Nobody's addressing these things. So I'm taking it that she's not aware that we're out here and we're strong and that we're all over the world, literally, with new abolitionists. So uh, she said that you could become a slave for any reason, any crime, any crime, even misdemeanors. So if you get an unpaid parking ticket or, you know, littering or whatever it may be, they could turn you into a slave. Uh, an example would be Georgia's state constitution, because she mentioned New York's constitution, their state constitution. They also have an exception clause, but Georgia has one too. And in Georgia, they say uh, 
except for punishment as a crime or for contempt of court. So even for contempt of court, they can turn you into a slave. And she mentioned about the surcharges, too. I really wasn't aware of that, but it makes so much sense now because we've reported here how many prisoners come out of the prison in debt. And that explains it right there. (laughs) They give them these surcharges uh, that they have to pay uh, whether they're making money inside or or not. And even if they do make a few dollars inside, like she said, 15 cents an hour or something like that, or money that the families put into the commissary, that money is fair game for the prison industrial complex. They just take that money right out and pay their surcharge that they imposed on a person with no job. And um, she said that uh, what's happening is people are being in recidivism. They're being forced into lives of crime, like literally. And this is to keep the cycle going. Now, I know that there are listeners out there who will be like, you got to be kidding me. These people are not forcing people to go out and commit crimes. They, they want to see them not come back to prison. Well, I will call BS on that, and I will yes. point it out with some facts. Within three years of release, about two-thirds, 67.8% of released prisoners are rearrested. Within five years of release, about three-quarters, 76.6% of released prisoners are rearrested. Of those prisoners who are rearrested, more than half. are arrested by the end of the first year. Now, that data came from 2014. So if it's not a system to set up to reuse people's lives over and over again, then how do you explain this? Because like she said, there is no rehabilitation going on. People are coming out better criminals. So, And her, her final thing that she was saying is that she doesn't want our bodies to be a commodity anymore. <laughs> and I, I 100% agree because that's, I look at it sometimes like this, like our bodies are like gold bars sitting in a bank and the prisons are the bank. And as long as they have our bodies in that bank, they have our wealth. We are the wealth. We're the wealth with free labor. We're the wealth where just warehousing our bodies is worth as much as $350,000 for a teenager like Khalif Browder. So that is their wealth. And we talked about the money a little bit earlier in this conversation. And I've estimated it that the prison industrial complex in America alone is worth nearly half a trillion dollars with mm-hmm. all the two billions here and the five billions there and the 10 billions there. And just the, the judi- just the justice system itself has been estimated upwards of $280 billion which is a complete contrast contrast to the stated $80 billion a year that everybody was talking about. Max, would, been, you say, uh, would you say that slavery today is more profitable than it's ever been prior to, to the Civil War? Yes, I would say without a doubt more profitable than it ever has been in the history of the world because it is a global issue with other nations adopting the model that we've created here using uh, this hybrid of convict leasing and slavery, which is basically just slavery. Yes, sir. uh, This this week, uh, just the past few days ago, I had one of the representatives from ITB Global out in Ohio uh, come and visit, and we talked about uh, using the facility that they have purchased there in Ohio uh, for the opportunity to bring together 
the Anti-Slavery Society once again and invite some of the best minds like this, Akisha, who we just spoke about, uh, invite some of these best minds out there who know what's going on to come in and see what we can do about ending this now, using all of our resources and powers and, and, and incredible intellects to make a change. So we're talking about doing that within the next year. You know, um, I referenced a conversation earlier, but before I forget, one thing you mentioned that she brought up, I just saw yesterday a case out of Charlotte, North Carolina, which that county is Mecklenburg County, and saying they highlighted the case of this young black man had never been right. in trouble before. Excuse me. Check, check the board. I invited her in, and I thought I saw her come up on the board. Okay, um... Miss your boss? Oh, no. Tell me she ain't here. That would be yes, so I've, awesome, I've man. tried to tell you I posted on her Facebook page. I put it in the in the links. I think there she, she is. I see her. I, keep I, I don't think that's her. Well, it says her name right yes, there. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. I yes, I see it. I see it. But, but let me finish my statement, and then we'll okay. we'll definitely bring her in. Now, one of the things that she mentioned, and you highlighted in your comments, Max, was out of Charlotte, Mecklenburg County. Um, there was a case they highlighted yesterday on the news about this young black man had never been in trouble before. Be for whatever reason, he stole something. Okay, and so they have like this what they call deferred prosecution program. And he needed $900 in order to even be considered for this program. And he came up about $600 short. So now he got to go to jail cause he ain't had the money. Okay. See, that's justice for sale right there. You know, playing on the words of that that uh, act that was introduced by Bernie Sanders. And, well, he was championing the act, but it was actually introduced by Keith Ellison and a a Hispanic representative out of Texas, I believe. Arizona. Yeah, where they were saying, you know, they named that Justice is Not for Sale Act. Well, in Charlotte, Mecklenburg County and all across this this nation, justice is for sale. If you got enough money, you can take advantage of these deferred prosecution programs. Now, the last thing I want to point out is when I heard them call it that, the first thing that came to my mind was Wachovia, which is now part of Wells Fargo, after Wells Fargo bought it up. Wachovia, some time ago, entered into a deferred prosecution agreement for laundering drug money, and they got busted. But do you think any bank officer went to jail? Nobody went to jail. They entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the Justice Department, paid a couple of million dollars in fine, which was not what they made in profit. It did not total what they made in profit, allegedly from laundering drug money for Mexican cartels. So, again, poverty, poverty, and also in her clip, she didn't call it crime. She called it the secondary labor market. Okay. So I, I just wanted to point that out. Um, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yes, we do um, have her on the board. Um, Max, do you, you, let's welcome her in. Yes, please. Let's, if she's willing to talk, let's have her. Sister El Shabazz, if you're there, uh, just press star, star. I already unmuted her. Or just, you know, say something and we'll hear you. 
Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. We're just here reviewing your comments. Thank you for coming. Sure. I don't know if I have a bad connection. I'm sorry. I hear a lot of static, but I don't know if it's my phone or the line. Uh, It may be the line. Okay. Okay. So, yes. I'm so glad you guys are talking about this, and um, I'm really pleased that you're all talking about the video. uh That's awesome. Well, as... As I mentioned before, in the past five years, this program has been on air. We've seen quite a few victories in the vein of what you were asking. As a matter of fact, right now, we're organizing several states to start voter initiatives to remove the exception clause from their state constitutions. Just in August, we had the largest uh, gathering of slavery abolitionists in the history of the United States, where we went to Washington, D.C. and had a rally there, as well as 20 other cities participating. So we've really been working hard in bringing this thing to light, including the Justice is Not for Sale Act, which uh, was issued in 2016 uh, with some help from our own lobbying. Mm, That's awesome. I love it. I love it because there needs to be a movement. It really does. Yes, yes, ma'am. We like to call it the New Abolitionist Movement, and I suspect you already are one after listening to at least like five of your videos where you spoke on this (laughs) subject in detail. I think that would be fitting. <laughs> well, if you uh, can, please tell us and the audience if how you became aware of this. When, when did it first begin for you? What was the key? Like with me, it was Angela Davis pointing out about the 13th Amendment continuing to be slavery and needing a new 21st century abolitionist movement. What, what was it for you? Well, you know, I, I'm a criminal defense attorney. And so I... Uh, and having gone to law school, I'm a former prosecutor. Um, it was always something that was in the forefront of my mind. Um, and so I had not really been very vocal about many things. Um, but social media sort of changed that for everyone, <laughs> um, including myself. Um, so when I started to speak out on the things that I was passionate about, it, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention that because it's always been something that, I have felt needed to be addressed. I think that we don't read as people, and I don't think people have ever taken the time to sit down and read what the actual amendment said. People just say, though, that's the amendment that freed us, right? But there's, you know, there's more to it than that. And so just wanted to bring that to people's attention, our people particularly, because, you know, we don't have this information. It's available to us, but we don't have it. We're not going to go get it. Um, We may not know it's there even. And so I felt like, let me stand in the gap because there's a reason I have this education and this training, and it can't just be for my own self-content, right? And so that's, you know, a part of the series of videos that I was doing. Um, And it was just, you know, at the moment, I was like, I just, I have to, I have to speak on this. Um, you know, I was in my car and, you know, I just put the video on and just went. Um, and I'm glad it was well received. And I, uh, you know, right after that came the, 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 the I think Ava DuVernay did the, the 13th or yes. the 13th, 13th, whatever, um, movie, um, highlighting this more so. Um, and so people can really understand the dynamics of the criminal justice system, um, and how, um, economics 
plays a large part. Now, not not necessarily race, so to speak, but economics is driving that eighty billion dollar a year industry. You know, that's mm-hmm. economics. Um, as I mentioned Ms. before, we've had uh, reports that it's as much as two hundred and eighty billion dollars. Uh, quite a bit of the money that is generated is not listed under the spending in eighty billion dollars. So uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's a whole lot more than we ever thought it was. Oh, oh yeah, I don't I, doubt that at all, Miss Scott. Sure. You want to say something? Yeah, yes. My Ms. next. Go ahead. Yes, uh, uh, thank you again for joining us on such short notice. Um, But I wanted to just inform you that you aren't the only attorney who has spoken on this. And and perhaps, you know, I would like to see um, a coalition of attorneys come together uh, as abolitionists. But we've had on, um, well, I don't know if she's still practicing right now, but she is a law professor, Dr. Vernelia. Randall, she really works in the arena of human rights. Uh, we've interviewed her. She acknowledges the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. Um, we also had on Nakimi Levy Pounds, who is running for mayor in Minneapolis, is it, Max? Yes. And and she is also an attorney. And she. And Angela Chan. And Angela Chan, I interviewed her. Um, years ago, she's an Asian American attorney based out of California. Um, and so you are not alone, sister, in your profession. And I just, I didn't know if you was aware of that. I was not. And that's good to know, because I will tell you, it does feel like a lonely, a lonely journey many times. Um, so good to know. It's refreshing to know that there's got a lot of help these days that, uh, we're about to introduce you to please just. Uh, follow us and uh, listen to New Abolitionist Radio as often as you can, and we will make sure that you get hooked up with all the people uh, that you need to know so you don't feel so alone, because we know how that feels, to feel alone in this fight. But your bravery is outstanding for a person that's standing alone thinking nobody else is around. Because I heard you on your one-hour interview, uh, I forget what the radio station was, and you said several times, nobody's doing this, nobody's doing that. I was like, if she only knew we were out here. <laughs> You know, I guess, you know, immediate, the the immediacy for which I speak when I'm looking at this every single day. You know, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I'm in court every day. Um, it's not lost on me, the dynamic, when I sit in that audience and the people in the audience look like me. And then every person that comes out that door looks like me. But every other person in that well does it. That's not lost on me. Every day I have to confront that reality. And it's because I, I'm an empath. I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm for my people. It hurts. It hurts every damn day, <laughs> you know. And so it does feel alone. It is overwhelming. But, you know, you fight. You fight. And, I, you know, I know my ancestors stand with me. I, you know, I might fight alone in the physical sense. But, you know, spiritually I'm protected. Well, uh, I want to give a shout out to Otis Griffin for them and sending you the message of inviting you here to New Abolition Radio. I do have another question um, for you. Um, on your video, you talked about we need an amendment for the 13th Amendment. We need to remove that exception clause. And then you said you, you, you laid out some things that can happen after that is done. And it's in line with, with some of our thinking 
And it, it just makes me feel good that perhaps we're on the right track because you reiterate it because then labor laws come into effect. Can you speak more on that? Well, you know, if you don't if you don't have that exception, then you can't exploit workers. They have they you have to they have to have rights, right? They have to have fair pay. They have to have conditions that are um that are safe and in an environment that is productive. So all of these things come into play for which they don't want to give these rights to these people. Right. And so there's so much incentive to, to, to maintain the status quo, but there's, there's, uh, it's just, it's never ending. Once you remove that, then they cannot exploit that population one. And then it does, if they can't exploit the population, then it doesn't become profitable anymore. And so the, the, what's the point of it? Right. What's the point of it? Then, then we can really look at reducing the numbers for mass incarceration because now it's no longer profitable for you. And so you have to, they're going to have to regroup and find another way to exploit it. Right? You were reading our game plan. That has been like from day one, we have been working towards that goal. I mean, the idea is to make slavery more expensive than it's worth. And that will make them right. stop because right now it's an economic development program uh, where, you know, they create jobs. It's probably one of the hugest job markets to come out since the 1970s, the criminal justice system. Everybody right. and their brother is a, is a prison guard or working in the system of law and court. It was something Absolutely. you said a little earlier, too, and it, it, it made me uh, pause because there is some area where you might be almost alone. Are you familiar with the racial makeup of the prosecutorial pool across the United States? Uh, somewhere around 91%. 95% white uh, people, 83% white men. A black female prosecutor is like a pink unicorn. I think there's maybe five, and I think I know all five now. <laughs> <laughs> I an assistant prosecutor. I was a pink unicorn for five years. <laughs> <laughs> five years, indeed. Pink unicorn. Now, that's a very small minority right there, black uh, female prosecutors. It is. And it's a struggle when you are a black, a black prosecutor because, again, it's not lost on you that the people you are prosecuting, most of them look like you. Mm -hmm. Most of them look like you. And you have a level of understanding about maybe how they came to be in the situation they're in, mm -hmm. right, that other prosecutors wouldn't have. Empathy. Um, You're so talking about empathy. It's difficult to, 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 to find a balance in that. Uh, so there are, you know, there was an organization that we started when I was a prosecutor, National Black Prosecutors Association. We created a New York chapter, um, you know, just to deal with the, the, I guess the, the stress of being a black prosecutor. Got to be a lot of stress, I can imagine, particularly because of the uh, constitutional violations that are go in play uh, every single yeah. day through the prosecutorial pool. And I'm talking about the 95% uh, plea bargain rate, which yeah. really means that the Sixth Amendment doesn't even exist. Because if you got 95% well, so, of the people aren't getting any kind of trial, then there is no Sixth Amendment. Well, here's the thing. Part of the problem with that is really tied to the bail situation, the bail statutes, right? Because if you have a person who is in 
he gets arrested and he gets a bail that he can't make. He's threatened to lose his job, lose his apartment, lose his livelihood, right? And so then the prosecutor dangles something in front of him. You plead guilty to this and you get out. You get out. You get out today. You get out next week. And so it doesn't become about whether or not they have a viable case against him, right? It becomes about I can't afford to lose everything and I need to get out. And so I take this plea, even though I could beat this case or even though I didn't commit this crime, Mm -hmm. right? You take the plea because you want to get out because you have to maintain your life. You got kids, you got a wife, you got whatever you have going on, right? You want to maintain those things. And that's part of the problem. That's why the rate is so high, because the, the percentage of people who are willing to take a plea just to end their incarceration is so high, right, that it's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that, that nothing is being done about that. It's, and I think about all of these rappers who have all of this money that every every there should be a bail fund in every county that there is no one sitting pre-trial in detainment you should not be detained pre-trial especially since you're presumed innocent right you shouldn't right. be sitting like you know there should be a Kylie Browder situation that should never happen you're talking about never. another violation of the constitution on a regular basis which is the eighth yeah. amendment that is supposed to protect you from exactly. these excessive fines and bails it's- and unlike most of the world, we're one of only two nations in the entire world that uses a for-profit bail bond system. With only only us and the Philippines are the ones that do it. Everyone else thinks that it's immoral and unjust, and it is. So it you're is. talking about two different working together violations of the Constitution, the Sixth and the Eighth Amendment, which usually come into play because of a violation of the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And so it's, it's just, you know, you just get raped continually by the system one step after another. Hmm. And, and just, there's no relief. Um, there's no relief. I, I, there's something that I really haven't been pushing lately, but a few years ago I was kind of really, like, trying to get people to focus in on that. And I want to talk about the jury system which I feel like is rigged against black people, um, you know, and poor people as well. But jury nullification. We saw jury nullification being used uh, to nullify the effects of the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, especially in the Pennsylvania area where you had a lot of abolitionists and Quakers and whatnot. And if somebody was charged with aiding a, a victim of slavery, uh, as they try to escape, then those people will be charged with that crime under the Fugitive you know, uh, Slave Act, and people just right. refuse to convict them. And, you know, mm-hmm. whenever I, I see cases where nobody's been murdered, nobody's been raped, I'm, you know, talking about victimless crimes, uh, primarily mm-hmm. drug crimes, if they don't involve right. children like an adult selling drugs to a child or, or something like that, you know, but if it's just right. two adults in that secondary market that you spoke about, I, I feel mm-hmm. like I have to vote not guilty. And mm-hmm. jury nullification, there is a movement of jury nullification, but it's primarily in the in, among libertarians. They speak about it. Right. And I feel like mm-hmm. we got to educate the public on that. 
Just because somebody technically right. violates a law, you don't have to vote guilty. Right. This is true. That's true. You're free. You're free to vote your conscience. You're free to vote your conscience. Um, jury, jury nullification is an interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I think we could probably have that happen more frequently if our people would stop throwing the jury summons in the garbage, right? Because yes, you come to jury duty, you gotta you gotta be part of the pool in order to get on the jury to 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 do a nullification, right? And that's part of the problem. We don't have a representative sample. Our people are not showing up for jury duty, and when they do. They are trying their damnedest to get off. Yes, ma'am. I suspect so, I mean, three quarters of them are worried they got a warrant. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are, you know, but the ones who aren't are just, they, they get up there and they go, I can't be fair. I just can't be fair. You know, instead of sitting there and shut up and don't be fair, then, then you know, don't have nothing to say. Nullify the vote. Listen, but, you know, the rules are, People want to follow the judge's instructions. And so judges do beat that into a jury pool's head that you have to follow my instructions, even if you don't agree. That's what they're told. Right. And that's what the that's that's what the law is. You're supposed to follow the court's instruction. As I was um, reading if you're not a... able to do that, then you're not, you're not supposed to be on a jury. I was just reading a jury nullification article two days ago, and they pointed out that, hey, they can't charge you with a crime for not following the judge's instruction if you vote not guilty. They really can't. They can't. They absolutely can't. There is no consequence for you when you are a juror unless you violate the rules in some other manner. But in terms of you voting your conscience, there's no punishment for that. In the past 10 minutes, we've offered three different avenues of change. Uh, one being amendments to the state constitution, something that's already in play. Uh, the other <clears throat> um, being, well, actually, let me stick with that. And I just saw on our chat room that Otis Griffin, the one who inv- invited you in today, would like to ask a question. Mm-hmm. So before I go into mine, let me bring him in. Otis if you're on the line, just unmute yourself, bro, and go ahead and ask your question. My pleasure, Mr. Officer Ball. Greetings, uh, Otis. Thank you for the invite. Oh, yeah. I watched a few when I saw you, Max, earlier. I watched some of your videos, and then when we got to talking, I said, heck, she's on Facebook. Uh, I, I just want to ask you something. Uh, the first time I had this conversation was back in the early 80s at SMU Law Library with a guy named Robert Rose, whose father the law library is named after. And he told me it might be worth uh, exploring. From what I understand, the 13th Amendment is the only amendment in the Constitution, the second section, that has 11 words that says explicitly what can happen. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The argument would be on a legal basis if Congress is given explicit power to enforce it, it also has the power to abolish it. There's no need for an amendment to the Constitution, actually, except you can do it through legislation. But our biggest problem over the last 30 years, in my mind, has been I can't find a single state 
where either a legislator or a senator doesn't own stock in either a private prison or uh, right. some kind of uh, after sentencing, with whether it's monitoring or electronic collars. But what do you think about that? Because you, you hang with lawyers and that's what you do. Yeah. Those 11 well, words should be a legal basis. I, I I I think you might meet some some um, difficulty there, only because when drafting legislation, especially the Constitution, framers are very specific with language, right? And so for them to say Congress has the uh, the power to enforce this by appropriate legislation does not also mean that Congress has the power to to um, to, to abolish this, right? It doesn't mean the same thing. They don't they don't go together. One, it doesn't follow that because you have the power to enforce something that you also have the the power to to um, repeal it altogether. So I just I don't see how legally that is sound. I think it's a matter of perspective. Are we talking about the thirteenth? There is no perspective in yes. the law. The law is the law, right? You, you know, it's not about how you look at it. You have to look at a statute by its plain meaning. Yes, well, let ma'am. me explain what I mean, though. Uh, the 13th Amendment itself is put into play to keep slavery going, not to abolish it, because it didn't abolish it. It legalized right. it with that exception clause. With that right. perspective, saying that Congress has the authority uh, to legislate this is basically saying that Congress can make sure that it keeps going, that this slavery thing can yeah. be enforced. Right. And that right. they can take it away. Right. Right, exactly. That's 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 my reading of it. Is that Congress can do whatever is necessary and proper uh, to make sure that this continues. Right, to because this. the Thirteenth Amendment's predecessor, right before we actually got that wording, uh, I believe it was the Corwin uh, Agreement, where he basically—I may be misquoting that—but basically said it was set in a place so that slavery could not be outlawed at any time. And that was not ratified. Instead, they got the 13th Amendment as we know it today. So with that in play prior to it, it's almost certain that this was the intention. Yes, absolutely. Because why else would you carve out an exception to slavery? Right? I mean, think about what that is, what conversation that is. When you're thinking about abolishing slavery, someone says, but wait. We got to make sure that there's some kind of way we can still have this free labor. Can I How answer can that for that? you? What was that, Scotty? Hello? Ms. Al Shabazz, can I answer that question for you? Steve, it was, it was sort of rhetorical, but sure. <laughs> she probably got an answer, too. Go ahead, Scotty. Yeah. Well, based off of the fact that Abraham Lincoln made it plain and clear that his intent was never to abolish slavery. He wrote letters to the Georgia uh, uh, congressman who was his good friend when he was a congressman to please tell your fellow slavers down there in the South that we don't mean to interfere with you and your property. Um, you you know, you think that this is something that's right, and, and but, you know, we just don't think it should spread anymore. But we're not going to abolish slavery, so don't worry about that. Now, they didn't believe him, so the Civil War happened. Now, in order to stop all these white boys from dying on the battlefield, uh, they had a meeting of the minds with the leaders of the Confederacy and said, hey, look, 
how about we just end this war and we're going to let you continue to practice slavery under these new guidelines. And there you have it. That's how you got the 13th. Mm -hmm. The, The only thing I'll add is if you read Abraham Lincoln's letter to Alexander Stevens, it makes it plain that he tells them that the rub is you don't have to do without your labor. The, the letter is, is astounding to me for a public record because it says basically uh, he's just telling him there's no need for a fight because I'm not trying to, like Scotty was saying, I'm not trying to take right. away your labor. Well, you know, right. I'm trying to hold the union together and we'll find a way that you can keep your labor. It's not I mean, that long. So if you don't mind, I'll read it in verbatim. It's, it's a very short thing where he wrote to Alexander Stevens. He said, my dear sir, your obliging answer to my short notice just received and for which please accept my thanks. I fully appreciate the present peril the country is in and the weight of responsibility on me. Do the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with the slaves? or with them about the slaves? If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend, and still, I hope, not an enemy, that there is no cause for such fears. The South would be in no more danger in this respect than it was in the days of Washington, I suppose. suppose. However, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended, while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. I cer- it certainly is the only substantial difference between us. Yours very truly, Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Well, is it dated? Yes, uh, it is dated from December 22nd, 1860. Interesting, 1860. So that's after the Dred Scott case. Right, and he said restricted. And what he meant restricted, by restricted right. was yeah. using the convict lease programs, which had been going on since Vermont in 1777. And I'd like to add, you can understand how Stevens didn't get it because out of Crawfordville, Georgia, on the 30th of December, 1860, he actually sent a response to what what uh, Max just read. And mm. Stevens didn't get it, but you can look it up. As, uh, or a matter of fact, I'll put it on your Facebook page. And you can see that there was dialogue and attempt to get Stevens to understand it. But even after that, what what seems to us pretty easy to figure out. He was telling him, we're not going to take away your right to slavery, but we're going to hold the union together. But you can tell by by Stephen's response that he didn't understand. Mm. Right. He he did not understand. And one of the things you mentioned uh, in your video is, you know, people not reading the 13th Amendment. And Mm -hmm. in their defense, I did not, I'm 50 years old. I'll be 51 in in November. I only read it just five to six years ago. And after I read it, the light went off. And in my mind, hey, Steven Spielberg, you crafty devil, you, you and your Lincoln film talking about slavery being abolished. So, see, this is something that we have been propagandized all our lives, everyone, the entire world, into believing that the United States abolished slavery. We pointed out mm-hmm. when they had in Washington, D.C., this was during the Obama administration. They had a little party, if you will, of uh, celebrating the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. But at no point, 
Did they provide any text? You would think they had this big giant poster board of this amendment that you're so proud of that you're celebrating. But hey, if we do that, people might notice that exception clause. I also made a video um, where I was going through all of these mainstream articles talking about the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. And I show in that video, because it's it's taking screenshots, how these writers purposely, I say purposely, I don't think it's an oversight. It's only 47 words long. You couldn't put 47 words in your article. Why did you only put involuntary servitude and slavery shall be abolished, dot, 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 dot. What happened to the rest? Right, (laughs) right. I love it. Sister <laughs> Ike, I put that letter on your Facebook page. Okay, thank you. I posted it. Well, um, we were going to also listen today to another gentleman who is as well-versed as you are in Scotty and myself. But in contrast to the three of us or the four with Otis of us here on the line right now, this brother is not consistent. And these are one of the things that really blows my mind, how somebody like a Sean King, or Mark, Mark Lamont Hill, or Ava DuVernay can come out and tell you in no uncertain terms that this right now is slavery and explain it to you and break it down to you in the smallest details, showing you that they are fully aware of what's happening. And then at every opportunity to be on national television or in a discourse about criminal justice, they never mention it. It doesn't come up. It's suddenly reform or let's fix this. It's a mistake. But on other occasions, they show you they know what they're talking about. And that really blows my mind. Would you like to listen to uh, Lamont Hill with us, uh, Mark Lamont Hill with us, and maybe have a comment on that? Sure. All right. Scotty, if, I, if you could pull that video up, um, we'll play it and listen to it together and then make some commentary after. Yes, Max, I'm, I'm pulling it up, but let's go ahead and take our station identification break. And then I'll go uh, yeah, right, right into that um, uh, uh, commentary by Mark Lamont Hill. I do have Perfect. the video, okay? So if you'll take us to break. Yes, sir. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we're talking about slavery and human trafficking as allowed through the 13th Amendment. We'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. About in the fifth chapter of that book is uh, the prison and how it came about. You know, when the prison came about, it really came. It's a, in many ways, a very American thing. There were other forms of punishment that were similar, but they were very different than what the Americans came up with. We had this idea, and the Quakers in particular had an idea that prison could be something that could be rehabilitative. We came up with the idea of the penitentiary, and at the root of the word penitentiary is penitence. The idea was that you could pay penitence, that you could give penitence, that you could 
uh, atone for your sins. And so the Quakers decided that they'd create a space where you'd go to this place and you'd reflect. They gave them a Bible. They gave them a bed. They read. They reflected. And they came out into the world better citizens. The problem is when Eastern State Penitentiary was created and these other penitentiaries were created, they weren't created for black and brown folk. And they weren't connected to the economic logic of America. This was a purely a, a project about making white people whole again. Then suddenly when black folk start going to jail, it's a whole other thing. It's no longer about rehabilitation. It's about exploitation. Remember, the prison begins after, uh, after slavery. You know, you had all these people on all these plantations, all these farms who are making money. America is built on the exploitation of black labor. America is built on slave labor. So slavery ends and suddenly the slave codes turn into black codes. Right. Because the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. Right. But it only abolishes slavery except under the condition of prison. In other words, if you commit a crime, if you're incarcerated, according to the 13th Amendment, slavery is still allowed. So you're technically a slave if you're in prison. Absolutely. You can legally be told what to do. Your labor can be forced, etc. So if if no, if, if nobody's a, if you, so think about it, like this. you need slaves for, to keep the economy going. You don't have slaves anymore unless people commit a crime. So what do you do? You make everything a crime. So suddenly the slave codes became the black codes. So now black people can be arrested for vagrancy, for standing outside, for cursing in front of a woman, for being out of town without a job. All of these things, which are fairly arbitrary crimes, or if crimes at all, they take them and they throw them back into the prison. And then they have something called the convict lease system where the prison can lease the convicts out to the same plantations they left to do the same work that they did as slaves. So now the slaves have become free only to become slaves again through prison. And that is a system that we're dealing with right now, a a, a new version of the convict lease system. And that's why labor is exploited. And that's why prisons have become even more for profit. That's why we see more privatization because people make make money in this country off exploited labor. And this is one example of it. There you have it. Uh, that is uh, Mark Lamont Hill. He works at Temple University, HuffPost Live, and CNN. And uh, it, it shows me that he knows exactly what he's talking about right there, which begs the question, why is that not part of his regular conversation? Because when you're when an he's on CNN, you recognize this, it's not part-time. It's always in your mind. Right. 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 I think, you know, I think Mark has to be diplomatic, right? That can't be always his conversation. And so he has to be selective in when and where he puts forth that conversation. Um, I, 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 I follow him. I see him a lot. Um, and I think that for the most part, um, he speaks the truth. You know, he, he pretty much lays it out there. Um, whether or not he does that all the time in mixed company, probably not. Probably not. And that's probably for, you know, very specific purposes, right? He wants to continue to be able to have that voice. And so you don't want to, you know, you got to recognize. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. He has to recognize that in order for him to be welcomed back, so that he can have a platform and have a voice, right? He's got to be diplomatic in the way he's, he presents arguments. And so he's not going to, at every chance he gets, jump up and down about the 13th Amendment and the exception, you know, to slavery. I, I understand so, that. I, I understand that. 
And yes, you do have to be, to use your word, diplomatic, or you should have to be strategic, depending upon your right. audience. But at mm-hmm. the same time, there are times when you're on CNN and they call it mass incarceration that it's appropriate to point out the 13th Amendment and bring it up in the context of that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what okay. I think is Max's frustration is that, you know, mm-hmm. when you're on other platforms, you know, you can you speak freely about it because you know about right. it and you think it's important that people right. know. But then when you get on a CNN, which reaches millions of people around the world, you're not even taking the smallest opportunity to drop a, you know, a, a, a little nugget of truth right. in there in the context you know, in the proper context. So I understand what you're saying. You do have to be strategic, but I, I appreciate right. him even speaking on it when he's not on CNN and pointing that truth out. Right. So have we, I don't know if he's been on CNN to have this conversation. Yes. Yes. I, I don't. And he, and whether or not he has he. Yes, I, I, I've witnessed it with my own eyes. Uh, one example would be both on CNN and in Twitter. Uh, he had an open dialogue with Sheriff David Clark. David Clark, Sheriff, out in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There are so many instances in that conversation, multiple conversations that he had, where he could have brought this to light. For instance, Wisconsin still has a state uh, exception clause in their state constitution. Even Senator Lena Taylor of Wisconsin has addressed this publicly, as well as uh, trying to put forth legislation to remove that exception clause for slavery in Wisconsin. Also, in the very city in which he is the sheriff, Milwaukee, more than one in two black men can expect to spend time in prison before they're 30 years old. So if you're looking for a place where it's really exploited, you can't go no get really no better than Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Sheriff David Clark himself is a white supremacist racist proxy speaking as a mouthpiece for these white racist supremacist groups and he is a slave catcher literally max i have to correct you he quit it was too much heat on him from all of those people dying in his jail especially that man who they withheld water from uh, all those days, and he died of thirst, of dehydration. So he quit, Max. He's no longer the sheriff. He is now a paid mouthpiece working for a super PAC for Donald Trump. I guess my point is, in those multiple conversations, all the opportunity in the world to point these things out and associate them to the 13th Amendment was there, and it was not used, right. which means to me that Mark Lamont Hill uh, has a selective memory. Like the argument is one way here and there's another way there. Right. Mm. I don't know. I can't, I won't speak in defense of the brother. Um, you know, all I can say is anytime he has an opportunity to speak on this issue, you, it, you can't speak on criminal justice reform, mass incarceration or anything like that without addressing the 13th amendment. It, it's just no way. It's no way. And you it, can't have a conversation about it without bringing up the 13th Amendment. It's like impossible. Right. If you're doing that, you're purposely omitting it from the conversation. And that itself is another question, which is, I guess, uh, individually answered. Why are you not saying anything about this? Not why are they? Right, right. Which is exactly what you were talking about with the Howard University uh, symposium. 
Yes. Uh, last week, uh, Sister Al-Shabazz, we reviewed a gathering of some of the greatest minds in the country on the 13th Amendment who had a panel discussion on the anniversary of the 13th Amendment. I wouldn't call them the greatest minds on the 13th Amendment. <laughs> they claim. This is what they claim. I'm quoting them. Like, literally, the host said, the moderator said, these are the best minds on this subject in the whole country. So wow. was the Oh, wow. Let's take their word for it <laughs> and, and oh, wow. hold them to that standard. But they spent an hour, it was an hour and a half long, and they spent an hour and 15 minutes never mentioning the convict leasing, never mentioning the exception clause. Each and every one of them conveniently left that uh, th- that those words out when they discussed the 13th Amendment. No, Max, Max. stood up in the audience, did they even say anything about it? Someone stood up and questioned it, the very first question. Yes, from the jailhouse lawyers uh, um, speak, speak. Uh, that yes. person asked that question. And a couple of those, quote unquote, law professors started denying that the 13th Amendment, you know, they, uh, legalized slavery. And I have to point what? out that this symposium was sponsored by the American Bar Association. Wow. Yes. Wow. So, you you know, you're in good company right now. And, and we feel like we need to be brave about this. We need to stop calling uh, mass incarceration and really start calling it slavery because you can't prosecute people for mass incarceration. There's are laws that protect you from mass incarceration, but there are laws that protect us from slavery and human trafficking and human trafficking in the guise of, for example, Vermont sending prisoners to Michigan or Hawaii sending prisoners to Arizona or California sending prisoners to Arizona. That's hu- human trafficking by any other means. Um, one thing I want to point out um, to everybody who's listening, the dangers of this reform message, because right now we got a former prosecutor, attorney Kamala Harris, who many people are yep. trying to prop her up to be the next Democratic nominee to run against Donald Trump. And while she was the attorney general of California, she her office, while she didn't do it personally, her underlings argued to the Supreme Court that we cannot ease overcrowding in our prisons. If we let the prisoners go, we would deplete California of its cheap labor pool. Right now, half of California is on fire and they're using prison slave right. labor to put it out. And, to put it out. and right. so, so when we, the, the issue I have with my, the term mass incarceration is because they connect reform to it. If we just don't lock up so many people, you know, and like Max ha- has got me t- to be fond of saying, you c- you can't reform slavery. You have to abolish it. So, you know, that's right. that whole danger of what I see as a reform movement that we have uncovered has actually been led by people like Alec, who have put these laws in place to keep people in prison. So now they're going to try to get ahead of this thing and, and get behind some reform so they don't lose all their labor. Exactly. That's what, so, that's what that's the pretense, right? To make it look like it's about reform because that's, that's a, it's a humanitarian uh, you know, it's about the humanity of it all. It's morally um, unsound, but that's really not what it's about, right? They're really just trying to make it look like they're going to do something about it so that they can try to maintain it. That's all. Right. Yes. You know, um, every year or every day, 
13,000 people go to jail. That's on average every day, 13,000 people go to jail. And during 2016, I believe, the Obama administration had put uh, a, a think tank together to come up with some ideas of how to reduce the prison population. And their suggestion was to uh, reduce, that would lead to reducing the prison population by 60,000 people over 10 years. That sounds good on paper until you go back to what I said earlier. 13,000 people went to jail today. How soon, how quick will they replace that 60,000 people? It'll be back to where it was in a week. So it really was just smoke and mirrors when they start talking about reform. Reform to me is a stalling process and it's uh, miseducation making people think this is not a crime against humanity. It's just a mistake and judgment and we didn't mean it all and we could fix it, you know? And that's not the case at all. Not at all. So uh, I would like to, if I can, uh, first get a website from you that our listeners can uh, go and check you out and follow you on Facebook. Yeah, uh, your uh, YouTube sure. channel. Sure. Yes. net is my website. You can find me on Ikeyspeaks at face, in, on Facebook um, and Ikeyspeaks on Twitter. Pretty much it. Awesome, awesome, because people need to hear what you got to say. You are a leader in the community, and your bravery is just awesome. Because, like you said, you didn't know there was anybody else out there doing it like this. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I just wanted right. to let her know. I just wanted to it's let you know you have a whole movement behind you. Yes. Yes, you do. Indeed, you do. And I'll say thank you for responding, because I kind of barged in on your Facebook page. I also hooked you up. <laughs> I hooked you up with a Howard speech and a couple of others that we shared a couple of weeks ago. Godspeed, young lady. Yeah, this is how change begins. You know, you never know when that moment comes and you're like, wow, and and change begins. Because just, you know, this interaction between us could be the beginning of something much bigger. And I suspect it will be. Any final comments that you'd like to leave uh, with our audience uh, in addition? You know, every time I speak, I try to give my five R's. To, to people when engaging with the police, whether you are on the street or in your vehicle, um, please follow the five R's. Don't run. Don't reach. Don't react. Re- remain silent and request a lawyer. Remember those five R's. The goal is to survive the encounter. And then you can fight back. But you got to live to fight back. Would you run those five R's one more time? I'm writing them down. I want to share them with our audience sure. in text. Don't run. Don't right. run. Walter Scott, you see what happens when you run, you get shot in the back. Yes. Okay, don't reach. Don't reach because if you reach for something, the police officer might think you're reaching for a gun. And that's even if you're reaching for an ID, your license. Your, if you reach, you, you have to announce to the officer that you are going to reach for something. Otherwise, that can be mistaken as, as a threatening move or a threatening gesture or furtive movement. And you can you can be killed, and it'll be justified because we've seen that happen. Philando Castile, don't react. You know, sometimes we get we get a uh, you know we get black on people, right? You know, why are you stopping us? Y'all always harassing us. Da, da 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 Don't don't give that off because that doesn't do anything for the encounter. It would only escalate it, and it's going to make it worse for you. So don't react, right? You want to respond. Those are two very different things. When you react, it's an emotional. Um, response. Don't don't have a, don't have an emotional response. Have a measured response. All right. So don't react. 
um, remain silent, right? You do not have to give information about where you're coming from, where you're going, who you're with. Provide your license and your ID and remain silent. And if you are detained, meaning you are not free to leave, and that's really the only question you should ask an officer ever, is am I free to leave? Um, and if he says yes, then leave. And if he says no, then request a lawyer. Remain silent and request a lawyer. Wonderful, wonderful. Don't run, Great don't, re- don't react, do remain, and do request. Thank you. Thank you, my sister. Yes. Got it? You're welcome. Yes, thank, You're welcome. Again, thank you all for having me on. I'm going to go sign off now. <laughs> all right. Okay, God, bless we're going to listen to some more videos and we're going to go over our regular segments, which is the abolitionist in profile, the uh, remembrance of a rebellion, and our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. And every Wednesday at 8, so you have a standing invitation. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, if you ever want to get something off your chest about what went on or something you realize or you want to share, right. bring it right to us right here. You're welcome anytime. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Be blessed. Okay, Max. Um, which you, you are were we... saying something, Scotty? No, I was just um, saying good night to her and, and to be blessed. Oh, okay. And stay safe this... behind these enemy lines of USA, Inc., there's about three stories I really want to go over, but we simply do not have the time for it. I will share them again. Maybe next week we can catch up on them. Uh, so I'm going to pick one out of these three. But the other two is this, where Governor uh, Jerry Brown is signing a bill allowing felons to vote in jail. Uh, I want to read this, and, and we should talk about this. Because Max, this I think important. that's from 2016 because I shared that. I think the bill's yes. already been signed in the law. Yes, yes, and, and, and it I would like to talk about the effects of allowing felons to vote. Uh, they said jail, and, you know, I, I'm thinking more prison. But either either way, we'll get back to that another time. And as you said, it's 2016. And the other one was the uh, constitutional rights that are being violated here in South Carolina, where a lot of people who are poor are going to be, you know, it's like an assembly line in these courts, and they're just being shoved through and not even offered a lawyer. As you said, request a lawyer. They're not even getting lawyers at all, just just being convicted and sent right into jails. And it's really a for-profit situation. So next week, I'd like to address that. But this week, if I only get to pick one, it's Kids for Sale. It's a CNN expose that came out with Anderson Cooper just a couple of weeks ago. And it's happening right now in the United States of America where these European adoption agencies are literally kidnapping children from Africa, in this case, I believe it's Uganda, and selling them for as much as $15,000 a child to American couples, white American couples, right here in the United States of America. And they talk about two different cases, one in Ohio, another one's in Virginia, I believe. And uh, they even mention at one point where there's several couples who refused to return the children. But, you know, let's just play the video, and you can hear it for yourself. I I wanted to make sure I get this out here today because this is just that important. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. CNN investigation has uncovered children being purposely orphaned. Mothers think they're temporarily giving up their children to be educated. Instead, they're sold to adoptive families who think they are taking an orphan in need. 
Randy Kay tonight has part one of our CNN exclusive investigation, Kids for Sale. Her name is Namada, and this is her in Ohio with her adoptive family. Namada was born here in a tiny village in Uganda. But in 2015, when she was just five, Jessica and Adam Davis adopted her. They call her Mada. The Ohio couple already had four children of their own, but wanted to take in an orphan. In October 2014, they got the call from their adoption agency, European Adoption Consultants. What did they tell you when they called um, you about Mada? We were told her father was deceased, that she was being severely neglected at home, and her mother was leaving her open to abuse. Couldn't provide an education. Yeah, put, never had been Couldn't provide in daily sustenance. They just kept saying, this is a mother that does not want her child. So it was made clear to you um, that Mata's mother was relinquishing her, didn't want her. Oh, 100%. There's no question. No, no, not at all. In April 2015, the Davises flew to Uganda to meet Mata, their new daughter. <laughs> she was in an orphanage, no toys, uh, bars on the windows. The orphanage was called God's Mercy, and it was about four hours from Mata's village. By September 2015, Mata was in Ohio, bonding with her new siblings. But after about six months, as Mata's English started to improve, she opened up to Jessica Davis about her life in Uganda, and what she shared was alarming. Mata told Jessica that her biological mom was a really good mom who loved her. She even detailed how her mother there would walk her to school every day. Every single thing in that file and that we were told, aside from the file, she unraveled to be a lie. A lie? How could that be? Jessica alerted the U.S. State Department. What did you tell the State Department? Everything that she had told me, everything was not true. And it sounds like she has a mother out there that really loves her and possibly a father. What were you afraid you'd find? that we had somehow participated in taking a child from a loving family. Yeah. Their fears would be realized. Jessica contacted an organization run by Karen Riley, who actually found Mata's biological mother in Uganda and arranged a video reunion. <laughs> Why are you so excited, Mata? Because I get to talk to my mom. How nice. Are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> we are doing fine. How are you? And in that moment, everything changed. The real story of why she was given up by her mother to this family in America was exposed. With that FaceTime call, she learned the true story. that her mother was tricked. Tricked, the Davises say, because Mata's mother was lied to. She was told the Davises were simply sponsoring her daughter's education in America, not adopting her. And that, if you can believe it, was just the tip of the iceberg. Because the Davises have learned their experience is not unique. In fact, a CNN investigation has discovered that multiple families have been duped. It works like this. Children are being taken from their homes, placed in orphanages, even though they weren't orphans, then sold for as much as $15,000 a child to unwitting American families. 
the promise of education with an ultimate return home, all just a ruse. They will hone in on vulnerable families, usually being single parents, widows. Would you like an educational opportunity for your children? Karen Riley, who is an advocate for Ugandan children and runs a group called Reunite Uganda, says a villager turned trafficker usually makes a sales pitch to mothers at a local church. Mata's village, she says, was targeted. That's how it all started at the beginning is uh, the person who came to the church. And that's, that's what happened in that particular village. So seven children went from a tiny village, the same village. This affidavit from the Ugandan government's investigation, one of many documents obtained by CNN, has a statement from Mata's mother. I had not realized that I had gone through a process to take away my parental rights completely. She states clearly she thought Mata was going to be educated and returned back to me. I don't want to see another mother yes. go through this. A Ugandan court says Mata's referral form to God's Mercy Orphanage is fraudulent. It says Mata's mother is helpless. The reason given for referral? No care is provided by the mother. The referral form is dated October 21, 2014, exactly one week after the Davises say they got the call that Mata was available for adoption. At the time of that call, the Davises now believe Mata wasn't an orphan at all, but still living at home with a mother who loved her. If a our child. child had been taken from us, yeah. we would want our child back. So the Davises did something remarkable. They filed paperwork to have the adoption vacated. They would take Mata back to her birth mother. Did you have the State Department's blessing? They were saying, you know, you, could, you can just keep her if you want. I said to them... I didn't purchase her at Walmart. I didn't know. Yes, you did. One year after they brought Mata home to Ohio, this. So, Mata, what's today? I'll go home. Are you excited? Yeah. Are you going to Uganda? Yeah. What's the first thing you're going to do when you see your mom? Hug home. Is this a long flight or a short flight? Long. After a 14-hour journey, Mata finally arrived home to her village. Hello. <laughs> In September 2016, the Ugandan government officially gave parental rights back to Namada's biological mother. But Jessica's story wasn't unique. Enter Stacy Wells. I just wasn't in it to, to, I don't know, to buy a child. I didn't need a child. Stacy Wells and her husband, Sean, already had two sons. But in 2016, they adopted seven-year-old Viola from Uganda. They worked with, you guessed it, the same company the Davises used, European Adoption Consultants. They, too, paid around $15,000 to the company. They say that agency told them a story strikingly similar to Namada's, but this time it was about Viola. What did they tell you about her mother? They just said that she had abandoned the girls, that after the dad died, they told us that she didn't feed them, that they were found sick, like dying, basically. Viola, it turns out, was taken to the same orphanage as Mata, God's mercy. But later, at her new home in West Virginia, as Viola became fluent in English, the truth started to unfold. A lot of it was how she talked about her mother. Her experience in her home just did not match the paperwork. Stacy, who spoke exclusively with CNN, 
also contacted Reunite Uganda to find Viola's biological mother. Karen Riley told us Viola's mom was also lied to by local traffickers, using the same false promise of education in America. Viola wasn't an orphan. In fact, she was made an orphan she was so you could adopt her. Right, right. Stacy traveled back to Uganda in November 2016 and reunited Viola with her mother. I mean, she was just running, and we get out, and her mother just embraces me. Viola's adoption was a fraud, and Stacy says it's all about money. They are getting the orphans because there's there's a dollar sign. You know, they a market's been created. A market for children with a pipeline, it appears, back to the United States, which is where European Adoption Consultants is headquartered and where we found the director of EAC's Africa Adoption Program. You helped organize the Uganda adoptions. No, there was people in Uganda that did it. I were did not. These, were these I mothers didn't... lied to? No, absolutely hey, Scotty, not. Let's kill it there, man. Randy joins us now. I mean, the story of what happened to these families. You heard it here, New Abolitionist Radio. And the reason I brought this particular story into play is because you clearly heard <clears throat> that the State Department is involved and aware. At one point, they even told the woman, just go ahead and keep her. This is corruption at some of the highest levels, and it is indeed slavery and human trafficking with a trade route directly from Africa to the United States where the State Department is aware of this crime. Scotty? Yeah, um, so this is already illegal. Okay, so the difference between the type of slavery and human trafficking we're talking about is the legalized kind. This right here is illegal. And if it's not illegal, and I'm sure it is illegal, okay, because there's fraud involved. So, yes, this is illegal. And I'm opposed to all forms of slavery and human trafficking. But I would like to also point out that when I saw the title on um, the CNN clip, Kids for Sale, it reminded me of what was going on in Pennsylvania with these kids being kids sold cash. to private detention facilities. Yes, Next. it reminded me of the same thing, the Kids for Cash scandal, which I'm sure people still don't know about, uh, where judges were busted and pled guilty Michael Conahan and uh, I believe the other one was Ronald D. Castile for actually selling children to a private prison industry. And Max, this yeah, also, uh, I'm sorry, if, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's it. Oh, okay. This also speaks to the myths out there about America, where people think this is the land of freedom and opportunity and what have you. And this mother um, probably has that view of America and had no problem sending her child to America to be educated. But what they need to understand is children are not educated in the United States. They're indoctrinated. And so, you know, that's not a slight against her. I just want to point out the myth again, the mythology that slavery was abolished in the United States and the entire world believes that lie. Yes, sir, Scotty Reed. <clears throat> yes, Otis, Otis sir. had a comment. Go ahead, well, I was going to tell you what you just put up. Uh, 
Professor Gerald Horn out of Houston. I, I posted it to New Abolition and to Black Talk Radio page. He says when you go to the history of black people here in America, and he goes from the slave ships in the 1700s right on up until now, what, what our people have to understand is this is a war in perpetuity against black people. And when he, when he tells you about some of what we touched on before, what you don't get, and he said that his generation and our generation are the first to be able to go back and look in the archives and find the truth about what went on in this country. And you understand why white people will pretend not to know what the problem is. But in, in truth, we are doomed in perpetuity unless we fight back. Talking about the white moderate that I read of in the yes. intro. Hmm? Yes. All right, gentlemen. All right. Well, there you have it. We only got a few minutes left and we've got three, a uh, couple of segments to do. So we're going to do a little, little speed reading. If that's okay with you, Scotty, I notice. Yes. Um... Yes, I think Scotty just hit you in the tag said, go, speed. All right. <laughs> I'm done. Uh, first, I would like to uh, do our segment for freedom's sake, a history rebellion. Tonight, we're remembering the German coast uprising of 1811. If the Haitian revolution between 1791 and 1804, spearheaded by Toussaint Overture and fought and won by black slaves under the leadership of Jean Jacques Dessalines, struck fear in the heart of slave owners everywhere, it struck a loud and electrifying chord with African slaves in America. In 1811, about 40 miles north of New Orleans, Charles Delon, a mulatto slave driver on the Andrews Sugar Plantation in the German coast area of Louisiana, took what the young historian Daniel Rasmussen called the largest and most sophisticated slave revolt in U.S. history in his book American Uprising. The Stono Rebellion had been the largest slave revolt on these shores to this point, but that occurred in the colonies before America won its independence from Great Britain. After communication, communicating his intentions to slaves on the Andrew Plantation and in nearby areas on the rainy evening of January 8th, Delon and about 25 slaves rose up and attacked the plantation's owner and family. They hacked to death one of the owner's sons but carelessly allowed the master to escape. That was a tactical mistake for sure, but Delon and his men had wisely chosen the well-outfitted Andrew Plantation, a warehouse for the local militia, using the slave catchers' weapons against him, as the place to begin the revolt. They ransacked the stores and seized uniforms, guns, and ammunition. As they moved towards New Orleans, intending to capture the city, dozens more men and women joined the cause, singing Creole protest songs while pillaging plantations and murdering whites. Some estimated that the force ultimately swelled to 300, but it is unlikely that Daylon army exceeded 124. The South Carolina congressman, slave master, and Indian fighter Wade Hampton was a damn, he was a lot of evil, was assigned the task of suppressing the insurrection. With a combined force of about 30 regular U.S. Army soldiers and militia, it would take Hampton two days to stop the rebels. They fought a pitched battle that ended only when the slaves ran out of ammunition, about 20 miles from New Orleans. In the slaughter that followed, the slaves' lack of military experience was evident. The whites suffered no casualties, but when the slaves surrendered, about 20 insurgents lay dead. 
another 50 became prisoners and the remainder fled into the swamps. By the end of the month, White, whites had rounded up another 50 insurgents. In short order, about 100 survivors were summarily executed, their heads severed and placed along the roads to New Orleans. As one planter noted, they looked like crows sitting on a long pole. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the German Coast Uprising of 1811. Salute. All right. Um, I guess our next will be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And today, our rider is Lamont McIntyre. He was wrongly imprisoned for 23 years for a double murder and he's finally been set free. This is from October 13th, 2017 by Eric Alder. The courtroom erupted in simultaneous shock and joy. Lamont McIntyre, wrongfully convicted in 1994 for double murder he never committed, wept at the defense table. On Friday afternoon, just two days after what was expected to be a long hearing to consider McIntyre's exoneration, Wyandotte Court uh, County District Attorney Mark Dupree Sr. flabbergasted the court when he said the county would no longer contest the facts of McIntyre's innocence. McIntyre, arrested at age 17, had spent 23 years behind bars as part of two life sentences on two counts of murder. When McIntyre stepped from the north side of Wyandotte County Courthouse and Detention Center on Friday afternoon, just before 4 p.m., his mother ran and, wa- and then walked toward her son as he was swarmed by media. I'm all right. I'm happy, you know, McIntyre said to the reporters, and I'm here thanking God. I'm thanking everybody who supported me and been here for me. It feels good. I feel good. I'm happy. Then he saw his mother. This is what I'm waiting on right in here, he said, embracing his mother, Rosie McIntyre, who muttered, oh, my Lord. He hugged his brother and others. We're here. So that means support and love is active, McIntyre continued. I'm glad that everyone showed up here to experience it with me. I appreciate it a great deal. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and say welcome to freedom, Brother McIntyre. All right, guys. Uh, Scotty, do you want to do the uh, abolitionist in profile tonight? Or you or or maybe Otis? Brother running out of breath. (laughs) You, You may be mute. Hello? Anybody hear me at all? Hello? Okay, well, just in case somebody can hear me, I'm going to go ahead and do our abolitionist in profile. And today our abolitionist in profile is this little-known abolitionist who dared to speak in public against slavery. It's by Aaron Blakemore, and it's from Time.com. This piece is part of an ongoing series on the unsung women of history. The thought of a woman abolitionist usually calls to mind a white woman speaking on behalf of enslaved African-Americans, but more than one figure in history challenges that whitewashed image of the of the movement to abolish slavery. Former slaves were often outspoken anti-slavery agitators, and so were black people born and free in northern non-slave states. One of those abolitionists, Maria Stewart, was one of her era's most effective anti-slavery voices, breaking boundaries for women even as she advocated for an end to a brutal institution. Born in 1803 in Connecticut, Maria Miller did spend time in bondage, but not as a slave. Rather, she became an indentured servant at age five when her parents died, leaving her a pauper. She served in the house of a minister for a decade, sneaking peeks at his library while while she worked. 
When her 10 years of service were over, she took advantage of New England's Sabbath schools, free Sunday schools to get even more education. Maria married James Stewart then she, when she was 23 years old, but when her husband died suddenly, his white executors deprived her of his estate. The lawsuit that followed left her impoverished again. This time, though, Stewart had an education to fall back on. Called to action by the prejudice she had witnessed in New England and moved by the plight of black slaves in the South, she began to write and lecture on behalf of racial justice. But Stewart quickly ran up against not just anti-black sentiment, but societal restrictions on women. At the time, it was a taboo for a woman to speak in public and even more scandalous for a woman to do so in front of a group of men. The women were expected to serve as a kind of moral conscience for their politically active male relatives. They were forbidden from doing so in public. And when women gathered to do good, they were expected to do so in same-sex groups only. That frustrated activists like Stewart, who knew that direct appeals to voting men were the only way to affect political change on slavery. She found a powerful ally in William Lloyd Garrison, Last week's abolitionist in profile, a legendary anti-slavery journalist who had discovered her writings and encouraged her to speak freely about her views. Garrison encouraged other women to speak out too. <clears throat> women like Frances Wright, a Scottish freethinker who scandalized America in 1828 during the first public speaking tour ever put on by a woman. Why not put the tactics of women like Wright on behalf, on, in action on behalf of the fight against slavery was the question. And in 1832, Stewart gathered her courage and addressed a group of black women in Boston. Then she gave a lecture to a group of women and men. She gave two other speeches that year, speeches that called Northerners to task for their bigotry against black men, women in particular. I'm also one of the wretched and miserable daughters of the descendants of fallen Africa, she declared in one address. Do you ask, why are you wretched and miserable? I reply, I look at many of the most worthy and interesting of us doomed to spend our life our lives in gentlemen's kitchens look at our young men smart active and energetic with souls filled with an ambitious fire if they look forward alas what are their prospects we here at new abolitionist radio remember and salute the abolitionist maria stewart and there you have it now again I'm not sure if anybody can hear me. Yes, Scotty, I can hear you, but I, I think Scotty must have taken a break. I was actually taking a long-distance phone call, so I, that's why I had myself muted. All right, y'all had me confused there for a minute, but, but the show but yes, you, you, yes, yes, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> we, I, well, I saw that he posted it. The time was running out, so I figured he was trying to do some work to get ready for uh, Mind, Body, and Spirit. Okay. So you you might as well do the close, and I, I appreciate the opportunity, man. No doubt, brother, no doubt. Uh, I would like to thank our uh, guests here and you, uh, uh, Akisha uh, Al-Shabazz, for sharing her views with us. And please follow her on Facebook and in other formats on YouTube and check out our videos. So thank you for making that happen, Otis. Um, I would, uh, I guess we got just a couple minutes left, so let me just close it real simple. After you heard all of this tonight, are you still confused? Like, really? Are you still confused? Because maybe the problem ain't us. Maybe the problem ain't that we're not explaining it well enough. Look in the mirror. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe you just don't want to accept truth. But there comes a time when silence becomes betrayal. And that time is not. Remember this. Abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. 
Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get Top billing, rise up when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep, deep in perdition, if our leaders are globally despised, and always seem to rise through attrition or blatant nepotism if women and children have to live in impossible conditions if you have to die due to someone else's damn decisions rise up when innocent citizens perish for all our sins sake if the future seems bleak and your soul's at stake rise up when it appears that any hope left may already be lost if the price is your son or your daughter's life and you refuse to pay the cost if you I had to ask God why And the thunder rolled If you just once had to wonder Have we sold our souls Rise up for the life of an unborn child When the homeless are reviled And the masses are beguiled Rise up when our doctrines dictate That we all deal in debt When we stop giving more And we start caring less If the best we can do has already been done If the battle isn't won And the fighting's just begun If you don't see none And know we really need one Rise up, rise up.